Status, immigration, and people. Status tells the human stories that immigration impacts. Somebody might be in the U.S. on a E-1 or an H-1B, maybe a J-2 or an F-1. They might be undocumented, or they may have their green card. They might be moving to Canada for a job, or to the UK, or maybe they're trying to escape violence in their home country. In any case, every immigrant has a story. Status tells those stories, and how the complex reality of immigration weaves its way into the narrative. Listen here to Status, Immigration and People, available on Podglamour. to another stop on the Michelle Mission, Two Men, One Podcast, every black film ever made. I am your host, Vincent Williams, and I'm joined as always by my partner. Hey, what's up? Holler at your boy. This is Len, a.k.a. The Bat Tribble. And on this stop on our road to 200, we are keeping it lean and mean. Mm-hmm. We are keeping it lean and mean with 1968's The Split. But before we get to that, what was that noise? I don't know what that was because there wasn't a man or frankly a woman in the split who would have made a noise like that. No, not at all. Not at all. But before we get there, ladies and gentlemen, we like to touch on all of the feedback we've gotten from you on all of our social medias. And it it is only fair then in this podcast that is dedicated to watching every black film ever made that we pay tribute to the loss of one of the stars of more than a few of the movies that we uh, watched over the yeah. over this mission, John Witherspoon, comedian yeah. and actor, uh, passed away uh, a couple of days ago. Um, he was the star of Friday, The Wayne Brothers, a voice actor on The Boondocks, um, stole scenes in Boomerang and countless other films. Um, passed away at the age of. 77 um, at, his, at his home and it appears to have been very suddenly I haven't seen any reports that speak to exactly what was the cause of his um, death. Yeah, me either. But uh, all of Hollywood has, you know, been taken by surprise at his passing. Because he was relatively young. Relatively young, seemed yeah. like he was in relatively yeah. good shape. Yeah, you know what I mean. Still, still working as yeah. far as oh, we yeah, know. Absolutely. Matter of fact, he was in pre-production for the last Friday movie. Yeah, yeah, that was about to be filmed. Um, and like I mentioned, he has come up in more than a few of our our movies. Of course, in our review of Friday and in Boomerang, um, and we actually. Uh, heralded his performance in oh what's the movie i'm trying to think of it was the scary movie um oh vampire in brooklyn vampire in brooklyn yeah i mean i think one thing that you'll notice there are enough episodes now that you can figure out who our loves are right and our loves are not people who like we necessarily like their work all Mm -hmm. the time 
But these are the people that stay on our minds. Yeah. And John Witherspoon has, I mean, again, like you said, if you listen throughout the show, he has come up again and again and again because he's just part of the tapestry of black film and black entertainment. And, and it is. It's a huge loss. Very huge loss. Um, it's amazing. He made his feature debut in 1980 in The Jazz Singer. It seemed to me like he's been around. I guess 1980 is forever ago now. Because right. it seems like he's been around forever. Well, I used to see him. I remember him on TV periodically. Oh, yeah. He was all. Yeah. Well, yeah. You would see him pop up on yeah. uh, TV shows and, and stuff like that. Um, I think. Was he a background player on the Richard Pryor show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yes, he was. I thought I remembered him on the Richard Pryor show. Yes, he was. Um, he was on the Richard Pryor show. He also, it, it, we talked about Boomerang and Vampire in Brooklyn. He was also in the Ladies' Man, Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in that. Winky Dinky Dog. Winky Dinky Dog. And he also did stints on the Tracy Morgan show, Black Jesus. I remember that on yeah. Cartoon Network just a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. So, uh, John Witherspoon, we we will miss you. Yeah, this is this is a huge loss. Very huge loss. This is a huge loss. Sorry. Our condolences to the family. Yes, they go out to the family. We received an email from Greg Dow. Hey, Greg. Um, Missionaries may not know that Greg, who is part of the sci-fi theater group in London, had reached out to us asking us to record an intro for their screening of Brother John. Yes. And we were very, very touched that they reached out to us for that. We did that, sent it out to them. Uh, Greg wrote back, Dear Len and Vince, I just wanted to drop a line to thank you once again for the perfect intro you recorded for our screening of Brother John last week. The audience really enjoyed the intro and it made the perfect appetizer for our show the film went down really well and lots of people came up to me afterwards to say how much they had enjoyed it and asked where to find your podcast i gave the pod a strong recommend and pointed people in the right direction so i hope that you've got some new listeners on this side of the atlantic Ah. I'm now a dedicated missionary, loving the podcast, and really glad I found it. Very interested to listen to your Sorry to Bother You episode, a movie I love but had not considered science fiction. After listening to the two of you and your take that it is speculative fiction, I'm looking at it a different way, and it's now on the short list for a future screening. Excellent. That is great. Yeah, yeah. Well, our pleasure, Greg, and thank you. Thanks again. Please do let us know whenever you're in London, and hopefully we can host you in person in our beautiful cinema. All the best, Greg and Graham. Thank you very much. Yes. And, and their, um, their theater is beautiful. He's, he posted pictures of it on our, on our Twitter page. Um, it, is, it is pretty spectacular. It's pretty gorgeous. All right. Yeah, so uh, pretty dope. Uh, so thank you, Greg. We really appreciate that. Vince, the war of the best movie theater snacks continues. <laughs> Your brother Damon. Oh, for God's sake. There I was all set to dismiss this list because any list of best movie snacks without goobers is not a worthwhile list. Yes, yes. But there it was 
all the way at number 36. It's amazing how many theaters don't carry traditional snacks. I'm not hating on anyone eating an entire pizza or 20 chicken strips during a movie, but it's a bit much. Why not just bring in a chicken box and a half while you're at it? You know, I've seen people show up. I won't say anything. That <laughs> screen eats right <laughs> with, with, with whole troughs Actually, of chicken. Actually, a dear friend of ours yes. has showed up with an entire meal. <laughs> Buffet, yes. if you will. Uh, uh, Keisha Hansard says... Oh, yeah. Hey, Keisha. Keisha, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's her sigh. I will not make friends here. Coffee needs to be on the list. And by coffee, I mean good coffee. Depending on the film, Pinot Noir. Oh, Keisha, you're so fancy. So now I sound uppity. Fine. Junior mitts. Salty. I'm fine with pretzels or popcorn. Pretzels are harder to mess up, so there is that. A burrito? Yes. Have napkins and big purse? I am about that life. All right. So, uh... Keisha has spoken. Keisha Vince. has spoken, and, and I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. Not Keisha. <laughs> she can say what she wants. Um, M. Jason Graham. Yes. You know, I went back and forth with myself about this, but I feel compelled to say it. Yes. I would argue that Django Unchained is not a black film. Okay. Not only is the script bad and only substantiated by Jamie Foxx and Samuel Jackson's performance, but it is purely from the imagination of a privileged white man that always wanted to be cool in his youth, but was never quite accepted. Although it has the production value of a period piece, the story lacks a basic understanding and empathy for the plight of the black people during that time period. I never believed that Django was actually in any danger for the majority of the film. Simple passing the white people off as idiots does a disservice to the protagonists in the story and our experience as the Negro problem in the history of this country. If this is a love story, then I would like it explained how Stephen is the story's chief antagonist. He is a slave and has no power to keep Django and Brunhilde apart. Master Candy is the only one that truly holds that power and therefore, for the strongest narrative, should have been executed by Django. As to powerful white men being idiots, I need only direct you to our current commander-in-chief. It doesn't matter how stupid the man is, power often makes them more dangerous. I could go into that fourth act Tarantino constructed to save Django from a torturous fate before death, but this is already too long. In closing, the blackness of this film has nothing to do with anything thoughtful, urban, and inspired by the writer-director. He does what he has always done, lean on the actors to sell the validity of his violent, masturbatory, nigger-loving fever dreams. My apologies for the length. I'll send an email next time. Well, all right. Well, all right. He has spoken. He does not believe that Django is a black film. I disagree. Do you now? I do. I mean, look, you, you can't you can't fight about Django unless you're ready to fight about Django. Mm-hmm. So and 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 you can't fight about Quentin Tarantino unless you're ready to fight about Quentin Tarantino. And we gonna fight. Okay. You know, we're going to fight. 
All right, we. I can't wait. You know, I don't. You know, I love me a good fight. I know you do. Uh, Markham Lee. Hey, what's up, Markham? He had to pause the Blade Two episode mm-hmm. to write this one. Regina King is everything. <laughs> yeah, you said nothing but a word, dog. <laughs> Two, son, she actually pissed out that dude, and the other white cops were standing around like, Whoop. "You shouldn't have lied to us." Plus, how did how did it was cold AF? Had dude feeling all safe and comfortable and then dropped the hammer. And yes, Vince, I didn't in fact yell, whoop his, you know what. And yet, at the end of the day, we were cheering a policeman violating the civil rights of someone who hadn't formally been accused of a crime. I didn't even look at it that way, Vince. You're right. Dude, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm, I swear, I swear I'm not going to go on a tangent. This Watchmen, like, like, obviously we're two episodes in, so, but this, this is extraordinary work. Man, I haven't watched the second episode yet. This I, is extraordinary work. Wait, and, 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 and the way it's kind of, kind of digging into race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw there was something about something happens in the second episode has to deal with how the Germans talk to. Oh, oh, right, right. Just the um when the Germans used to drop flyers, right, on the black soldiers. The Vietnamese did it too. Okay, basically saying, "Why are you fighting us?" Or, or rather, "Why are you fighting for this country?" Mm-hmm. This country has done nothing but treat you terribly. That's very true. Come over here, and we'll treat you better. What this look? We're two episodes in. We said we're gonna do we're gonna do a binge lounge after five. But this this is extraordinarily strong work right now. Francis Doso. Hey, what's up, Francis? Just listen to the Blade 2 episode. It was great. Always love listening to the show. One thing though, highly disagree with the pulp fiction argument. Okay. It's my opinion that Tarantino only uses black characters to play out his own fantasies of black life and histories. Okay. Based on a long line of Hollywood stereotypes and misguided ideas about black cultures. I think Bell Hooks said it best. No doubt that retro hairdo he, Joel's in Pulp Fiction, sports throughout the film keeps him from charting a new journey. It's his own signifying monkey. Okay. No matter how serious Jules rap, that hair always intervenes to let the audience know not to take him too seriously. That hair is kind of like another character in the film. Talking back to Jules as he talks to us, it undermines his words every step of the way. Because that hair is like a minstrel thing, telling the world that the black preacher slash philosopher is ultimately just an intellectual, arty white boy in drag, aping imitating and mouthing intellectual rhetoric that he can't quite use to help him make sense of his own life. Okay. You know what I love though? I love black people being in the position where we're critiquing it. So even if we don't agree with each other, Mm -hmm. we are in the position to critique it. Right. Where, where we're, we're the, we're the critic. Which is all we ever wanted with this. 
Like, this is actually all we ever wanted. Yeah. To, so, to have our voice be heard. Yeah. So. Don Miskell asked a question. Hey, what's up, Don? Wouldn't it be cool if Maxwell, okay. the singer Maxwell, could act and was chosen to play Marvin Gaye in a biopic? That's not a bad matchup. It's not a bad match. I don't know if Maxwell can act though. That's the thing. Yeah, I don't know if Maxwell can act. I would. I, I don't know how much Maxwell talks. Like you think about some of these people. Like I don't know if I've ever really seen an interview with Maxwell. I think I think I may have seen an interview around the time because a few years ago he had issues with his throat. I think he had to have some kind of surgery. Right. And I seem, seem to remember seeing like an interview with him around that time. But that's other than that. I would submit that while Maxwell wouldn't be a bad choice, someone who can sing and I think is not bad as an actor. Okay. To play Marvin Gaye might be Lenny Kravitz. <sighs> You're not feeling that. Not no, feeling no, 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 no. I'm just wondering if you can get that vulnerability from Lenny Kravitz that I think you need for Marvin Gaye. Well, you don't know whether or not you can get it from Maxwell because you True. don't know whether he can act. Well, Lenny has acted. L- Lenny, yeah, Lenny can act and so you Lenny can g- sing. So you want to give him that, uh, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Who, who would I cast as Marvin Gaye at this exact second in real time? Because it is a story worth being told. Oh, come on. Marvin Gaye's story is ridiculous. But you know what I say about these Motown stories? It's still too many people alive. Smokey Robinson, Barry Gordy. Yeah, but what about the person who will probably truly hold the purse strings on some of the stories known as gay? She might be willing to strike me as someone that might be willing to open up. I don't know who I'd cast. No. That's a really interesting question. Interesting. Let me think about that. Did you see the story? This was uh, posted on Madame Noir. The lost writings from Zora Neale Hurston have been found. More I lost writings. saw that. Will be released in 2020. Zora Neale Hurston is one of the most revered writers of the Harlem Renaissance and decades after her death and literary works continue to be rediscovered. According to Vibe, Hitting a straight lick with a crooked stick from Harper Collins subsidiary Amistad Books will consist of writings about racism, <laughs> love, gender, sexism, migration, and classism, as well as eight short stories that were found um, in her archives. It's set to be released January of 2020, a week after what would have been Hurston's 129th birthday you know what i think i'm so happy that that we were blessed like we're old enough that we can remember i i guess almost the arc of the rediscovery of zora neale hurston Mm -hmm. like i remember having profs who had to xerox stuff right because books were out of print like, you could get copies of Their Eyes Were Watching God, but it was like some random printer. Mm-hmm. But once you left Their Eyes Were Watching God, like, like you know, dust tracks on the road and mules and men, like, you couldn't get any of that. So I love the fact that you can go and, like, Target and buy Zora Neale Hurston books. Right, yeah. So I'm, 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 I'm always happy about Zora Neale Hurston stuff. 
talk about somebody they should make a movie about. How about that? Yeah. Jeez. How about that? Um, Craig Wooten. Hey, what's up, Craig? Posted um, a poster about a movie, The Nightingale. I don't know if you're familiar about this movie. I am not. Not familiar with enough... Not familiar enough with Australian cinema to know how familiar with the tropes of American cinema, but despite his failings, this film, The Nightingale, where an Irish indentured servant hires an Aboriginal Australian to track down her rapist. Oh my goodness. The, the, uh, slash the man who killed her family. Shows the brutality that black people suffered at the hands of their colonizers. Taking place near the end of the Black War where genocide was committed on Tasmanian tribes. This film was quite eye-opening. Um, and I, I'm not familiar with this film. Me either. It sounds interesting, though. But Jacqueline McGee Smith uh, commented... Hey, Jacqueline. ...that uh, I studied abroad in Australia about a decade ago as a media study major and dealt with quite a bit of Aboriginal-based media. Okay. It all seemed very dry and kind of academic until weeks in when I met an Aboriginal girl in one of my classes. She personalized what would have just been words in a book and made the impact of colonization more deeply felt for me. I'd equate their struggles as being more on par with Native Americans than American descendants of slavery. But she told me that a lot of Aboriginal civil rights fights were definitely influenced by the goings on in America with us. Hmm. They call themselves black fellas, at least her mob did in recognition of that kinship. We are not the same, but we have been treated similarly. Hmm. Well, all right. It's all right. I want to hunt down this movie. Nightingale. Sounds interesting. It's so smart. I know. Well traveled. And lastly, Dim Sum. Hey, what's up, Dim? Dropped in this conversation starter. Everything you've heard about Dolomite is my name is true. It's foul and hysterical. And I don't think I've ever heard the F word anywhere near so many times in one movie. Eddie Murphy was born to play this role. It's oddly familiar territory. It's Bowfinger all over again, written by the same duo who wrote Ed Wood. And yet it works and is anything but dull. When in the final moments of the movie, spoiler alert, Eddie leaps onto a lamppost and swings from it Gene Kelly style screaming hello you mother effers while beaming his big old ecstatic six year old Kool-Aid grin and applause or open for business sign might as well drop down because he is talking directly to you that is the moment you know for sure that Eddie Murphy is back and he is not effing around anymore see it don't wait have you seen it yet I have watched it was I not supposed to watch it? No, no, no. You're definitely supposed to watch oh, it. Oh, yeah. I wasn't sure what that looked like. No, no, no. But you, you didn't love it? No, I liked it. I liked oh, it a lot. okay. All right. You, you were doing that Lynn stuff. No, because you were just staring, and I thought you were like. No, 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 no. I, I like, thought you were going to say, it was all right. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> that Lynn stuff. Et tu. <laughs> um, no, I liked it. I liked it a whole. I liked it a lot. I liked it. I, liked, I, I really, it. really did. I en- I enjoyed it. You know what surprised me the most? Just how heartwarming it is. 
Like hmm. it's actually this heartwarming tale of family. Like the family you choose. It it does have some of those moments. Yeah. yeah. Especially the moments with Lady Red. So yeah. 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 What surprised me, and I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. I know what you're about to say. My man Wesley Snipes. That damn Wesley Snipes. <laughs> that damn Wesley Snipes did not come to play with y'all. He did not. Wesley Snipes is not here for jokes. Wesley Snipes is not a game. No, he is not. Eddie Murphy, one of the greatest comedians of all time, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Somebody hold my beer. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. And when he leaves the movie, that literally is Wesley Snipes has left the building. Oh. Did he destroy this movie? He destroyed it. He destroyed it. You destroyed. You gonna give me how many scenes? Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Where's my camera? He was amazing. Yeah. In a film with amazing performances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yet it is not without controversy. Because and as yet- Robert Monroe posts, yes. his own conversation starter. Rudy Ray Moore's daughter. Boy. Says she's on welfare, and what's her cut of Eddie Murphy's Dolomite Netflix film? I have so many questions <laughs> about this entire story. Yeah? Yeah, really? Uh, First of all, Rudy, Rudy Ray Moore had a daughter? Apparently. Because I read, and I think this is a case, I don't know if she was adopted or 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 he's the... He he's he's her legal guardian, or it was some type of phraseology in the story. Speaking with the blast, Rusty <clears throat> Wesson, yes, says she is the legal daughter of the late comedian and actor Rudy Ray Moore. Yes, it's not fair that other companies and celebrities are making millions off of her father's likeness while she is struggling on welfare. Miss we- Miss Wesson pulled receipts, including her father's will. As right. well as documents stating she is the executor of Rudy Ray Moore's estate and she plans to go to war to get her coins. So here's my question. I understand that there's like we're in the midst of a Rudy Ray Moore renaissance. Uh, let's not get crazy, but OK. No, no, no. I think it is fair to say that more people are talking about Rudy Ray Moore right now. Fair. Than have talked about him since. Like maybe the early nineties. Right. Right when Snoop and when Too Short and all of them. Right. You don't think there should have been a steady stream of income since at least the late eighties. Like I'm thinking the blockbuster days mm-hmm. of people renting Dolomite in the human tornado, streaming Dolomite in the human tornado downloading Rudy Ray Moore. Like, like, you know, not enough for somebody to be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. But it seems like as long as there are college-age boys sitting in crappy apartments, Mm -hmm. it would have been a steady stream of income since the 90s. No, not to me. Um, Because, one, you've got to think of Despite how this movie paints it, I don't know how truly on top of his business and his paperwork Rudy Ray Moore was. Okay. Two, you've got to you've got to 
think about it that even when the 70s became vogue again in the late 80s and early 90s and they started finding Rudy Ray Moore, that was in the midst of everything else that was surrounding the 70s. Right. And 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 that whole era. And those things certainly got <coughs> much more play yeah. than Rudy Ray Moore. And the early 90s into the early 2000s was also the um the era of major league piracy right of media right and you've got to imagine that not only was Rudy Ray Moore probably not on top of his paperwork but he wasn't dealing with like the biggest companies of at, right at all so how much on top of their paperwork were they right. that they would be tracking down bootlegs, bootlegs and, and all that type of stuff. That's a good point. So I really don't think he probably saw a lot of them. He probably got some dough, you know, as rappers started having him in videos and right, things like right, that, right. you know, putting some money in his pockets. Right. But as much as you saw him in some videos, he didn't all of a sudden start showing up in people's movies anymore. Or he wasn't like all of a sudden like a spotlight on like Martin or TV no, shows. No, no, I hear you. I and, and, so. and let's be clear. I don't think Rudy Ray Moore was a millionaire. It's, it's true, a, but I'm it, just saying even steady income. Right, right. Like I thought maybe if I'm the executor of Rudy Ray Moore Enterprises in 2005, mm-hmm. I might make thirty thousand dollars this year off of Rudy Ray Moore stuff. And maybe she did. But that's 2005. That that's, that that shift on sale. Yeah, my point is, if somebody is in place since then, it seems like that now when it's time to make this film, you don't have to pop up. Mm-hmm. That's my point. Like you don't have to pop up. Back to Zora Neale Hurston. This isn't somebody who was completely gone, right? And then they excavated them, right? Like Rudy Ray Moore has been a presence. Low-level presence, mm-hmm. but presence nevertheless, it, again, at least since Blockbuster. Yeah. So I just I just have quest, like logistical questions. I hear you. Markham Lee wrote that courts- What's up, Markham? Courts tend to rule against people in cases like this. Basically, the life of a public figure is sort of public domain, and you don't have to pay them to tell that story. Frank Sinatra had to drop a case about a tell-all book. Mark Zuckerberg couldn't do much about the social network. There is no legal requirement to get life rights. Studios only get them to get behind-the-scenes access and to just avoid the hassle as part of the deal is that you promise not to sue no matter what the final product is. If Netflix settles, it would be more out of respect to Rudy Ray Moore, right. but they don't have to, and it's a risky precedent. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's a good point, good point. Yeah, so, huh. interesting story. It'll be interesting to see yeah, how that yeah. all... But um, if you've not seen... Dolomite is my name. Make it your business to see Dolomite is my name. Yeah, check it out. Willie Green, you got 24 hours to get out of town. And 23 of the hours are gone. Were you were you having flashbacks? Yes. To, to, to Dolomite? I was. Were you having flashbacks to the episode? Yes, I was. I was. I I, I do have to say I was. What you, what you want with me, man? What you want? <laughs> Especially the lovemaking scene. It was very, 
really took me back. Put uh, your weight on it. One, one, one last story. Um, okay. Robert Monroe Jr. Uh, posted in our Facebook group uh, uh, a link to this documentary. It's actually from 2016, The Invisible Universe. Oh. The Invisible Universe documentary reveals the history of the representations and participation of black people in the genres of fantasy, horror, and science fiction or speculative fiction framed through the point of view of a time-traveling archivist. The documentary explores 150 years of speculative fiction literature, its origins, developments, key personalities, and current state, all through the perspective of black people and history. And this uh, documentary, or at least a trailer for it, is available on Vimeo.com. <clears throat> the Invisible Universe is actually um, the work of M. Osley Dukan, who is a um, friend of... I was about to say, she's a friend of... All, she, yeah. she, I think she might be a missionary. She may be a... I believe yeah. she may be a missionary. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I des- lef- definitely know she's a friend of the Tribbles. Yeah, she's one of us. So... We'll have to see about getting, yeah, getting her on the yeah, absolutely on the mission. Yeah, talk about invisible universe. Absolutely, and, uh, talk about all that type of stuff. All right, all right, all right, ladies and gentlemen. Um, before we get into our review, I want to give you an update. Two updates, in fact, about our 200th episode, which will be a live broadcast at World Cafe Live, where Vince and I will sit down to review 1971's Shaft, starring. Richard Roundtree, directed by Gordon Parks. And that review will be followed by a very special 70s soundtrack Soul Train dance party. Um, It now can be told that our DJ for the evening is one Scheme Richards. All right. Now, Scheme Richard is not a just a local DJ here in Philadelphia where he was... um, which he calls home. He is an internationally known DJ who has um, rocked crowds and stages around the world. In fact, when I actually spoke with him uh, to nail down and uh, put a bow on him being our very special DJ, he was in a airport in Milan all right. On his way to DJ in Germany. <laughs> this is what this is the man's life. That's all right. This is the man's life. Um, so Scheme Richards will be our very special DJ for our 200th anniversary for a uh, 200th episode for our 70s soundtrack dance party, which is right up his alley. He loves that type of stuff. And you will love Scheme Vince, because you've never met Scheme. I have not. Uh, Scheme is a, a buddy of mine, huge geek. Um, All right. Been on Black Triples more than a few times. And you know what he's most geeky about? What? Godzilla. You know, you know my you know you know that joint comes out like this week, right? You know they've been showing Godzilla films all during October on Turner Classic Movies. I'm not saying because you know my birthday is this weekend. I'm not saying I'm expecting it for my birthday. But if it were to show up for my birthday, I haven't looked at any of them. <laughs> oh, because you just... Because I'm waiting <laughs> to see the pristine transfers on the Criterion Collection. 
I better get an invitation for one of them. Man. I want to come see one of them. Man. I am so hyped for this Godzilla box set. Yeah. Yeah. You and Scheme both. Scheme is a huge Godzilla guy. That is all right. He's a huge Godzilla. A few years ago, these guys put out a very special like uh, Godzilla comic book. Okay. And Scheme put together like a whole soundtrack for it. Oh. He, he loves Godzilla. He loves kaiju <sighs> movies. So, yeah, you'll love Scheme. You'll love him. All right. Um, and our uh, second announcement about the about our 200th episode is I posted it actually in our Facebook group. So you can look for this. Vince and I and Mixologist Supreme, one half of the ladies who love hip hop, Summer Willow, want to hear your ideas for the Michaud Mission specialty drink um, that we will be featuring at our uh, event. Summer was putting together like her own idea of what she uh of what you wanted to drink to to be but then we came across the idea well hey let's ask the missionaries what what do they think the misho mission drink should be give us their ideas okay Um, you know like maybe what should be the base what do you start with you know um because she was trying to find like that middle ground between me and you because i'm a vodka guy yeah and you're a whiskey head i know so like so I don't know what the she, I thought the middle ground between that might be either rum or tequila. Sure. I'm just I'm just, look look all I know I'm just supportive. You know you're go supportive, with, but this is the this is what I'm going to say. Oh boy, here we go. You know you and your ailments. If you can't hear, Vince got a little bit of the sniffles right now. <laughs> February twenty seventh. I don't want to hear you with no sniffles, man. No, no, no. Because no, when no. we did what Black Panther screening before, oh my god, and we did Wakanda, the Black Panthers and the Michelle, you couldn't drink the vibranium. And and the consistent theme in all of this, dude, dumb kid colds. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. They're damn near tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, 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 no. I'm on my emergency. I'm there. We're I don't all, care. Because I, I don't care. I know. All in. All in. The cough all you want. Cough all I want. This will clear it. This will clear it. I know, right? I'm put a funnel in your mouth and pour it down That's your throat. That's all right. I ain't going to be the only one toasted in an afro. <laughs> Shoot. All right. Let's get to our review. Yes, sir. 1968's The Split. Yes. Oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. One more thing. One more thing. Real quick. Real quick, Vince. Because yet again, we have a slew of new members. Yes, we do. In the in, the, in the, our Michelle Mission Facebook group. New missionaries. So let's welcome Roscoe Handy. Hey. Melanie Gross. Donald J. Eli. Ramey Ramsour Usher. C.J. Jacobs, Dave Hollowell, Heather Nufwil, Mickey Bonita Sanyadora, Sanyadora, and Dan Dickerson to the mission. Welcome. Welcome all. And I uh, hope you're enjoying the conversation. Hope you're checking out the podcast, enjoying the shows. Um, we really uh, uh, want to thank each and every one of you. Um Oh, you know what? I, 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 somebody got on me because I haven't been going to Twitter. Um, 
and I really should, because Romario Manuel hit us up on Twitter. Hey, what's up, Romario? He said, hey, fellas, it's been a minute. Looking forward to Blade 2. Anything to wash away the sna- stagnant taste of Ghost Dad from my mind. <laughs> Ghost Dad. Um, by the way. Okay. People Under the Stairs. Yeah. Was one of Anika Noni Rose's favorite films while we were in school. <laughs> you know Just what? thought Vince would like to know. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> That tracks, though. It does. Because she's a very intelligent woman. He also says that in regards to Blade 2, best of the series action-wise, the racial tension was high, but it was always interesting that the black vampire and the tragically underused Donnie Yen were never targeted by the rest of the blood pack. Was it colorism rather than racism? Ooh. Ooh. Inquiring minds... Don't really care. All right. Let's get to our <laughs> review of The Split from the 1960. Split. We'll be back with the film review soon as we do something funky and have steps in it. Thousand seats in the place. And that's a lot of money. Jim Brown is McLean, a dark horse with a bright idea. One half a million. Split. Six ways. I don't like who I'm working with. Either they're all locked in or none of us are. In McLean's violent underworld, they judge a man by the color of the money he steals. Don't you know it's just a game, love? So make believe. That this is real love. You have the whole world to mess up. Why me? You're on the spot, boy. Oh, there were no names. A style that was unmistakable. They were having the time of their lives until it came time for the split. What are you guys trying to pull? Some kind of 50-50 split here? Convince me you didn't set it up. I want my money, McLean. You busted in the wrong place this time, buddy. He'll kill you. I want McLean. The Split is a 1968 American neo-noir crime drama directed by Gordon Fleming and written by Robert uh, Saberuf, based upon the Parker novel The Seventh by Richard Stark, a pseudonym of Donald E. West's book. 
Westlake. Westlake, sorry. It stars Jim Brown and Diane Carroll, Julie Harris, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Klugman, Warren Oates, Donald Sutherland, and Gene Hackman. The plot is the thieves fall out when more than a half million dollars goes missing after the daring and carefully planned robbery of the Los Angeles Coliseum during a football game, each one accusing the other of having the money. The split, directed by Gordon Fleming, 1968, was the choice of Lynn Webb. What do you have to say about the split? The second this movie opened up, when I first saw this movie, just sitting, laying in bed on a Sunday afternoon, uh, watching Turner Classic Movies, as I am wont to do. Right. Um, after the Eagles. And it was, I think it was like their one win of the season so far. So um, and this movie came on, and I was like, oh, it's a Jim Brown movie. I want to watch a Jim Brown movie. Sure. Let me watch it. And the second it comes on, it comes on with a familiar, like, sounding like movie score, you know, like, you know, all instrumentation, all serious and stuff. And we're out seemingly like in this 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 desert. Um, but then you hear Billy Preston. Yeah. Yes, you do. And this, you see a very striking profile close-up of Jim Brown. Yeah. And immediately you realize, oh, we are not in Kansas. No, we are not. We are in something totally different. And I was locked on that film for the rest of the way. Jim Brown in 1968. First of all, before we get into the movie itself, I think it's important for missionaries who may not know not only who Jim Brown is, <coughs> but what Jim Brown represents. Right. Jim Brown in, 1960, in 1968 is at this point three years removed from one of the most amazing sports careers of all time full stop yeah oh yeah this is a man that is um in college and high school excuse me in 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 uh school in in high school lettered in football lacrosse baseball basketball and track this is a man who is legitimately in the lacrosse hall of fame. Yeah. Yeah. It, y y are you going to talk about the lacrosse thing? No, you go ahead. Well, the lacrosse rule, the Jim Brown rule. No, I see. I don't even know yeah, that. They What's... had to, apparently, <laughs> apparently Jim Brown, when he played lacrosse, he would just take the stick. Yeah. Put it up to his chest and just run through everybody. <laughs> which, which tracks. And they, they actually had to make some kind of rule that I think you have to pass the ball or something before it goes. And it's the Jim Brown rule. Because because Jim Brown was just like, all right, I'll just start here and in there. You say, I, I got to go there. Right. Uh, okay. I'll go there. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Yeah. Because Jim Brown was the man. And that's we're talking about lacrosse. 
We're not talking about where the man made his bones. Yeah. In football. Because when he gets to the National Football League and plays for the Cleveland Browns, Jim Brown in 10 short seasons sets the all-time rushing record for the National Football League that would stand for over 30 years. Okay. Jim Brown was a man. He is literally the definition of a man among boys. Yeah. Jim Brown was just revolutionary to the world of sports. And then he parlays his success, the enigma that he had become in the world of sports into moving into the world of Hollywood Mm -hmm. and into films Mm -hmm. and into action movies. So much so that his second film, he stars in what is now considered one of the hallowed action films of all time, The Dirty Dozen. That's right. Which goes into overruns, filming overseas, and the Cleveland Browns threatened to fine him $1,500 a week until he comes back for training camp. He's going. To, he's running over and shooting the film. Because to be clear, he's still playing football. Because he's still playing football. Yeah. So Jim Brown says, okay, I hear you. I retire. <laughs> Full stop. I mean, he already said that he could have still been playing. Yeah. He was yeah. still a beast. Yeah. But he said, you know what? I like these movies. I'm making more money. Yeah. Deuces. Right. I'm out. Goes on to do the Dirty Dozen, then goes on to become a leading man in Hollywood. Yeah. While Sidney Poitier is starring in all of, you know, the important films yeah. of the time. And no knock on Sidney no, Poitier. No, no, no. Jim Brown is becoming the first true black leading action star yeah. in Hollywood. Full stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it is all on display right here in Gordon Fleming's The Split, which is a movie that's smartly cast him against type. Mm. While his physicality is definitely a part of this film, and it definitely is on display in this film from... The moments when he is um, just shirtless, just walking around to his really actually pretty brutal for 1968 fight with Ernest Borgnine <laughs> in his office. Yes. Um, to Jim Brown seemingly doing a drop kick better than anything Jim Kelly ever did. His physicality is on display. He was so high up in the air. I I, th- I was like, well, clearly there must be some wires or something. <laughs> no, no. Remember how we said Wesley Snipes is the special effect? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jim Brown. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Jim Brown is, the, which we know because Jim Brown actually started the Black Stuntman Union. Right. I mean, the, Jim Brown, he was, he was Bill Cosby's stunt double on iSpy. Yes. Like, that's how beast Jim Brown 
is. Yeah. But then in this film, he is also cast as the smartest man in the room. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He is he is also cast in this film as the sexiest man in this room. Oh, oh yeah. Because it is not lost on me that here in 1968 when Jim Brown in this film apparently, you know, just new in town, for, seemingly just released from some type of confinement or whatever, and a place to first place he stops is Julie Harris's house. Yes. And you see Julie Harris extremely happy to see him. Extremely happy. Hugs up on him. Yeah. Oh yeah. Kisses him in a very touching, affectionate close-up. There's a there's a very striking close-up where Jim Brown reaches out his black hand. Yeah. All alone on the screen and a white woman's hand comes and takes it to kneel at his at his uh, feet and kiss him lovingly on the cheek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, this is some very strong imagery in yeah. 1968, ladies and gentlemen. Because it's a couple of years before uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Yes, it is. So this is pre-blaxploitation. Yes. Th- this is not blaxploitation. Yeah. This is a smart, intelligent, sleek cool film noir detective story crime caper one of the best crime capers I've ever come across because not only do they lay out the plot you see the plot being unfold you see him gather up his forces you see Jim Brown at this point still new to the movie screen yeah stand toe to toe with Academy Award winning actor Ernest Borgnine. Yeah. And and them both going tet for tet. You see him standing up with one of my 10 favorite actors of all time, Donald Sutherland, and not giving any ground. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, you Jim Brown just owns this screen. He owns this smart film and the director Gordon Fleming is smart enough to get out of his way to give you nice um to let Jim Brown's whole being just fill up the screen and and walk you through this story you see Jim Brown being um loving and sexy and affectionate and romantic with Diane Carroll yeah um Diane Carroll who to be fair, it's not given a lot to do in this movie, hey, but be the plays, yeah. be the love interest. Yeah, you know what I mean. But there still is a tenderness to the scene of her and Jim Brown in in bed. There's a tenderness to that, right? That is uh, is very rarely allowed in 1968 on black screens. Absolutely, in a in in this major production, right? Um, so that is to be appreciated. There, there's like there's very few false notes in this film. It is sleek. It is lean. Yeah. Oh the, yeah. The, the oh sto- my I, I mean, I just love. I love that the the not only is the the movie lean, but the dialogue is lean. Like there's a scene where um Julie Harris is talking to to Jim Brown, and she's talking about. 
talking about Diane Carroll's character because it's somebody that he wanted to, you know, he wanted to return to. He's back in town. He wants to get with her. And she says, what if she doesn't want to be found? The, the girl, Ellie. Cut to Ellie picking up the phone and you just seeing her cry. You don't even have to see have any words. Yeah. All you have to do is just see her cry and then cut to they're in bed. Yeah. And that's all the storytelling you need. You already know their entire history. Yeah. You already know their entire backstory. You already know the backstory between uh, Jim Brown's character, McLean, who is basically, basically the Parker. Yeah, he's from, Parker. From the Richard yeah. Stark stories, mm-hmm. but they just renamed it for this movie. <clears throat> You already know his his backstory with Gladys Julie, Julie Harris character from from their um from their camaraderie when they're just sitting there eating Chinese food, right? You right. know, um, it, it's it's just such a smart film. I mean, any film where Gene Hackman, one of the greatest living actors, yeah, of the oh last yeah. fifty years, doesn't enter into the movie I until know. the second half. I mean, the second half, like, yeah, like the last, last 15 minutes, like last 15, 20 minutes of the yeah. movie, he comes in yeah. and plays an integral part of, of the film. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, this and, it, and the, the film, like, you know, you, it's got double crosses. You don't see them coming. The the one the, there's one weird thing that happens with James Whitmore's character as the landlord um, and this kind of like. And, and and it's very it's very strange, but I, I don't think it's I think it's very purposeful. You know, him this this crazed landlord who has this lust for the yeah. Diane Carroll characters, yeah, um, Ellie, uh, which then gets played out in metaphoric terms that you know that are. Right there for you, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. I, I mean, <laughs> yes, he just goes all out. He, yeah. He, yes. Well, he murders her before he can rape her. He murders her before he can rape her, but in a way, the murder is the rape. Yeah, I was about to say because it's with very the way sexualized. Yeah, it's very sexualized with his with with his response and his release. Yeah, at the yeah, end the of it. Yeah. Um. Which which is still 1968. Yeah, that's saying something, man. Yeah, um, and it's not. It, I can go on and on. I just want I, I want to give you room to 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 come in. I just want to say that this film may may have already vaulted to one of vaulted to one of my top twenty films that I ever. I enjoy this film so effing much. It's it's a great film it's a great film I, I i don't know how much i can add i'll say i i love the parker films like i've never read any of the parker books well the only parker film that i knew before this was point blank and payback oh, i forgot about payback. yeah payback right. and point blank yeah po- point blank which came before this yeah and start lee marvin right it, and it's not a bad film right but Lee Marvin, who was going to be cast in this one, they cast Jim Brown. I think they made the smart choice. Yeah. And I love both of the paybacks. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, it's, it's, it's lean. Like, like you can't, like, there's not a bit of fat on this no. thing. And the cast is extraordinary. You talked about Ernest Borgnine fighting with 
with Jim Brown, everything you just said about Jim Brown, that he's basically a superior physical specimen than anyone on the planet. Right. But it tracks that they're going to tussle. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just not going to pick up Ernest Borden. I'm like, okay, looks like they would fight for two, three minutes. Yep. Yep. Donald Sutherland is slither, slithery and serpentine. Yes. There is a sequence where he goes up on a roof to take out a sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. And he has a dead look in his eyes. You can't tell if he's going to kill a kid. Right. Or a dog. Right, because he's just aiming at a crowded corner. Right, he's just aiming. And it's like, what is he about to do? I mean, and he shoots tires. Mm-hmm. But he is he is fantastic. Oh, my God. Jack Klugman. Right. Jack Klugman. Jack Klugman is... is, is it, love Jack... Love Jack Klugman. An underrated actor. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Like you said, Diane Carroll plays her position. But I have to say, if you thought Diane Carroll was going to be alive by the end of this movie. That's true. You've never actually seen movies. That's very true. That's very true. Good point. But you're absolutely right. I think as far as capers go, it was thoughtful. Mm-hmm. It was smart. It played fair. Yes, exactly. That's what I like, right? I thought the complication with the landlord, you know, I kind of buy it. I kind of buy that he had kind of been lusting after her mm-hmm. the entire time and then seeing her sexualized. Right, by with, Jim Brown being right, there. Now. Coming in and out, like that just... Pushed yeah. him in a whole different direction. Right, right. Because he had been, probably been writing his own story exactly. all along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the efficiency of the script. Like you said, you mentioned um, you mentioned skipping to to the couple in bed. I love the fact that we never actually see the landlord get killed. That's true. Nor are we told that Gene Hackman's cop has stolen the money. Right. Right. The film trusts us enough that you can make that leap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 lean, it's sexy, it's it's smart. Yeah. Talk about sexy. There's a scene where the Warren Oates character, um, that's another underrated actor. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, he gets set up by McLean using this girl. Yes, at a bar. That is that's one of the sexiest scenes. Oh yeah, them just like her just walking him into basically her web. It's like, oh my god! It's like, what what is happening here? <laughs> but you understand, you completely understand how Jim Brown is immediately situated as the black leading man. Yeah. Opposite Sidney Poitier. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I will say this for me. It seems like when we talk about Jim Brown, there's an acknowledgement of the dirty dozen. But I feel like a lot of the Jim Brown conversation is within the context of black exploitation. You're right. And I think it is fascinating that Jim Brown was carving out 
this career mm-hmm. outside of this subgenre. Yeah. And he almost got sucked in because he he's he's transcendent. Mm-hmm. He is transcendent. Yeah, he's he's he he is like on he's on another level. Like he you you talk about that he did he de- does dirty dozen he does the split he starred in Ice Station Zebra which was a big production yeah oh yeah not a great movie yeah but a big but it was pro- a big production right it was a big production um and that gets him uh, a contract well the dirty dozen gets him a multi film contract with MGM right so then he does the split he does Riot which is a prison film. Mm-hmm. Both of those films are huge, solid hits. Right. And he and, and solidifies his place as an action star. And then he would go on to like uh do um an adventure film. He'd do another crime, uh, another uh action film. Um he'd do westerns. Yeah. Uh he was he was really building up his career. I think because he was the action guy, right, and that was what the black exploitation films started to be get being right. built on, right. That's how he then started to get lumped into those films, right. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that is a shame. I think it's a shame that it gets lumped into those films, but I don't want to speak out of turn because. To be fair, I've never seen Jim Brown's black exploitation films. Oh wow, you've never seen Slaughter? No, I've never seen them. Oh, so I don't know like how he comes we across. Have to rectify in that. that. Well, that's what yeah, thus yeah. the mission. Yes, yes, yes. But um, I mean, fantastically, just not with as much um, budget, budget and support. Yeah, because these other films. Yeah, because I wonder how he because like I I think I mentioned I don't know if I mentioned it on. Um, on air that the re- one of the reasons why I wanted to get in touch with Jim Brown because I want to build to three the hard way right which is Jim Brown Fred Williamson and, and Jim, Jim Kelly. Kelly yeah we we've done all we need to do with Jim Kelly right right um, we, we still have not done any Fred Williamson and he's coming yeah but I wanted to start with Jim Brown you yeah know, wanted to see why did that film land on those three right right and now right. you can see immediately why Jim Brown is there. Yeah, oh yeah. Because, you know, outside of just the enigma that Jim Brown is just in the zeitgeist of pop culture. Yeah. You could see where he where he fits in Hollywood. Jim Brown is he's otherworldly, man. And and you talk about physical specimen. I don't think next to the rock Dwayne Johnson. I've never seen a man fill out a suit like Jim Brown. Look. He is walking through this the Coliseum in this movie in a mock turtleneck and a suit. <laughs> and by God, I was ready to propose to the man. You're talking about the suit. I've never seen a black man wear a leather jacket. What? With leather gloves? I said, what store in heaven did you get that jacket from? I think some angels just <laughs> carved out some rawhide 
and lovingly tapered it around him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you completely understand. Well, he embodies this Parker character, though. Yeah, he does. He does. And and and, and smart. And and that's the thing. He is very. <coughs> he's very minimal in his acting, yet there's a lot going on. Well, it's interesting that Lee Marvin is the name that came up being cast because I think about Lee Marvin. I think about Lee Marvin. I think to a certain extent, Steve McQueen. Okay. These are actors who aren't necessarily the greatest quote unquote actors. Right. When we think about range. Yes. And emoting. Yes. But they have so much presence. And charisma. And charisma that they don't need to. Right. That's and, true. And and I think that's Jim Brown. Like, I don't need to know Jim Brown's interiority, frankly. No. I don't need to know the interiority of a Jim Brown character. You're right. But I, I would equate, just to, to use your two examples, I would equate Steve McQueen. I put Steve McQueen and Jim Brown in that same, in, in that same boat. Because while they may not show a whole lot of range, you can still read what's going on. You, right. you still get a sense of what's going on and they still can play well in certain scenes. Like Jim Brown does not feel lost in bed with Diane Carroll. Right. Um, he feels, he feels just as comfortable in that scene as he does threatening Gene Hackman in his closet. Right. Um, uh, a difficult scene. A very difficult with scene. With him in shadow. With him in total yeah. silhouette, yet you still feel his menace. Yeah. You still feel his presence. Um, he feels comfortable in that. And I think Steve McQueen does it, can pull off that, that same trick. Lee Marvin, as much as I like Lee Marvin, I always of thought course. Lee Marvin is, is a one-trick pony as far as like what he's giving you in his face. Right, right, you know right. I mean? With maybe the exception of when he has to play drunk. And, okay. Um. I think Cat Palou. He plays. He plays a, a wild drunk. But other than that, he's pretty much a one trick p- pony. But J- Jim Brown is just like he. He's got. He's giving you the full Monty of his act of his presence in this film. Right. Um. And it is smartly coupled not only with the direction by Gordon Fleming, um, but with the <gasps> score. By Quincy Jones. Oh my goodness. Because the coolness factor of this film is in Quincy's instrumentation in this film. Like, if you ever doubt it, like, you know, why does there's some some people who may just, you know, Quincy Jones, oh, he was Michael Jackson's producer. Or Quincy Jones, oh yeah, he wrote Sanford and Son. Right, right, and right. or or Quincy Jones, yeah, he was the young guy on some of the earlier fifties and sixties jazz, you know, albums, right? And stuff like you know, maybe he was sitting in the room because he knew this guy, that guy, right, right, like right. That. But it's when you listen to a score like this, <laughs> you know, you listen to the split that Billy Preston sang, but yeah. that was produced by Quincy Jones, right. that you realize what Quincy Jones really is. Quincy Jones is a masterful musician. And what it brings to a production. Right. 
like just that sheer level of polish mm-hmm. that separates films like this. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 this this is an extraordinary film. Yeah, really good. This stuff. is an extraordinary film. I, I don't. I have no understanding why it's not more well known. Me neither. I don't. I mean, maybe because it is so lean and sleek. Um, it's a. It's there's no fat. It's barely an hour and a half, and that's yeah, only oh, yeah. credits. Um, so maybe that's it. Um, maybe. It, there is something to be said that Jim Brown, um, without going into it, you know, did run into some legal troubles. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah absolutely. In and around this time, yeah, in absolutely. his career, um, and then would become he was a, unapologetic in in good ways, yes, and, and, and in and, bad, and in bad ways, yes. Um, so. That may have maybe tarnished his his you know his the luster yeah absolutely for Jim Brown, um, and because his black exploitation exploits have been so celebrated, right? That outside of the more classic films such as you know the uh, Dirty Dozen, Do- Dirty Dozen, some of his other other films maybe have gotten lost in the sauce yeah a little bit in like this two to three year period in between yeah when he was making seminal work like this but you know this is where you know i agree with a lot of the missionaries and people that you know celebrate our podcast and that we have an opportunity to shine the light back on yeah films such as this because this is a film that if you have not seen it you really owe it to yourself to see it. To you sit really down do, and just and like with popcorn or pretzels or a cup of coffee, and enjoy the split. This is really a good. Here's time. the thing: the popcorn and the coffee is going to get cold, and the pretzels are going to be untouched. Yeah, because, because once be it starts, in. once it starts, this film grabs you by the throat. Yep, and does not let go until the credits. Yeah. Really good movie. Really good. It it really is. Really tight. Yeah, this is good stuff. Well executed stuff. Um, So, would you recommend the split? Yeah, damn it. (laughs) Like you can stop the podcast right now and go watch the split. Yeah, 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 me too. This this is fantastic work. Go check it out. And it is a black film because Jim uh, Jim Brown and Diane Carroll are first and second on the call sheet. Quincy Jones did the music. Look. Done. Everything orbits around Jim Brown. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is his film. Yeah. So. Great film. All right. All right. All right. Before we tell you what we're going to be watching next week, ladies and gentlemen, I invite you to send us all of your feedback. Email us at mission at gmail.com. Hit us up on all the social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. At Michaud Mission. Join the Michaud Mission Facebook group where we have a lot of fun with all of the missionaries. The Michaud Mission is a proud member of Podglomerate, curated podcast for your listening pleasure. Go to thepodglomerate.com to check out their lineup of shows. We also are available as a radio broadcast in an edited form on WPPM 
106.5 FM Philly Cam, People Power Media here in the city of brotherly love every Saturday at 1 p.m. And you can wake up with the Michelle Mission Monday mornings at 9 a.m. on WKDU 91.7 FM, the voice of Drexel University. Next week on the Michelle Mission is Vince's selection. Yes, it is. And and Lynn, you you raised the bar so much oh. with this. You really did. And and as we kind of mentioned throughout this podcast, Jim Brown had one peer in the realm of black leading men, and that was of course Sidney Portier. Mm-hmm. And a year before this, Sidney Portier delivers my favorite performance with another film featuring the music. Of Quincy Jones. Ooh. Directed by Norman Jewison. Oh. Co-starring the amazing Rod Rod Steiger. Oh yeah, it's time. Next week we're doing In the Heat of the Night. In the Heat of the Night. So yeah. We're gonna do In the Heat of the Night. Oh, well, we said we're breaking out the good ones. Oh, yeah. We're breaking out the good ones, ladies and gentlemen. So that's, that's, that's where we're going. That is where we're going. All right. Heat of the night next week here on the Michelle Mission. Until then, he's Vince. I'm Len. And in parting, we say. We'll see you when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again.